Well, let me encourage you to join me, if you would, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, I don't know about you, but I wish that every time that I ministered, whether that was in word or in deed, or whether that be publicly or privately, whether that be on a Sunday or whether that be throughout the week, I wish that I could say, you know what, I did it in love. But that's simply not the case. It's all too easy to engage in loveless ministry, and often we do that and we don't even realize it. I certainly do that, and you probably do too. And the fact of the matter is, it's really not good. Just one example. Long before we had a deacon who was responsible for um, our setup crews, I walked in here one Sunday, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour before the service, I had to set up chairs. Others would arrive shortly thereafter to set up other things like sound and kids class and nursery. But what I saw that morning, uh, I realized as soon as I walked in, this is way more than I could possibly do. I walked in the back doors there and there was a large stage up front here. The entire room was filled with round tables and chairs literally from the front all the way to the back. And there was a fair bit of food on the floor. Uh, I had not planned for that. I just looked at it and was immediately overwhelmed. And to be honest, I was upset just from the moment I saw it. Uh, And I got to work there in the flesh. And my thoughts and attitudes were not very godly or loving. And as I worked, I was thinking things like this. You know, this rental situation, as great as it is, it's really, really frustrating sometimes. And people need to be more considerate and they need to communicate better. Someone should have at least told us that, We were going to walk in and it was going to be like this. Or more people should be helping with this each week. Or everyone is going to get here. They're going to sit down. By the time they walk in, it'll be fine. And they're going to walk in and they're going to sit down in their chair for worship and not even think about the fact that somebody set up their chair. Now, I know that you're probably super impressed with my godliness at this point. Uh, My guess is that you can relate. People frequently engage in loveless ministry. The Corinthians did. And in fact, Paul, as he spoke about the Corinthians, he said that he knew of no church that was as spiritually gifted as them, the Corinthian church. In chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, he highlighted that. And the language that he used, he said, you guys are enriched with spiritual gifts. And you're not lacking in any spiritual gifts. There's a lot of churches that might feel like they can't say that. And yet somehow the Corinthian church was a complete and total disaster. Do you know why? Because they were missing something. And it wasn't uh, a serving gift. And it wasn't a speaking gift. It was love. Your spiritual gift is only as good as the love that accompanies it. And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is all about. And so I invite you, if you would, follow along as I read this entire chapter. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. Or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Here today we want to consider four facts about love together. And the first is that love is needed. Uh, Verses 1 to 3 describe the futility of a loveless ministry. Love is an absolute necessity. If you are going to have a fruitful ministry, there is no substitute for it. Nothing can make up for a lack of love. You can use your gift in the body and you can be seeking and you, or you can be serving and you can be speaking and you can try to be uh, being a disciple maker and, and, and doing these other things. And you can use your gift in the body, but if you do it without love, you're wasting your time. From three different angles in verses 1 to 3, the text expresses that love is needed. Just again and again, love is needed, love is needed, love is needed. First, without love, you produce nothing of value in ministry. Uh, Look with me again at at verse 1 of chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What we have there in that verse, I, I think it's just a really basic, simple equation that goes like this. Beautiful ministry. And we're talking about spiritual gifts here. Beautiful ministry. Minus love equals zero positive impact. Actually, we might say ministry minus love. It's not just zero positive impact. Uh, Zero ministry minus love equals negative impact. You're using your beautiful gift. In this case, it's uh, it's tongues. And it's producing cacophony. You're like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You're just noise. Uh, One person described it this way. It's like there's noise, but there's no melody. Your gift is literally having the opposite effect of what God intended it to have when he gave it to you. When he gave it to you, he intended that it would be beautiful and build up the body. And yet what you're doing is damaging rather than helpful. You could actually be sounding beautiful, doing beautiful ministry, and be producing nothing. Without love, you produce nothing of value in ministry. And Paul's going to go, well, why don't we look at this from another angle? Without love, you are nothing of value to ministry. Look at verse 2. Paul says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. This verse is describing some pretty amazing gifts. Things like prophetic powers and knowledge and understanding. And the last thing mentioned is uh, miracle working faith. Such gifts would make you seem pretty significant in the body. But possessing a gift doesn't make you important. And some people seem to think that it does. And here again, we just have a, a simple equation. Amazing or magnificent ministry 
I mean, the type of faith that moves mountains. Amazing or magnificent ministry minus love equals what? Being nothing. That's the language of the text. I am nothing. You could do great things and yet somehow be nothing of value to ministry. Without love, you are no value to ministry. And looking at this from a third angle, without love, you gain nothing of value from ministry. Look at verse 3. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Uh, This verse describes sacrificial ministry, and oftentimes ministry is that way. You can sacrificially give of your resources all the way to the last dollar you have. And you can sacrificially give of yourself, but it's actually possible to do all that without love. It really is. Even self-sacrifice can be self-centered. And Paul's just giving us another really simple equation. Sacrificial ministry. You give of yourself, your time, your energy. Even if you ultimately gave your life for the cause of ministry, sacrificial ministry minus love equals no personal gain. You could be giving all and you could be gaining nothing. There's no eternal reward in loveless ministry. I think we need to recognize God can use it. And often he does. Think about how often we engage in loveless ministry and God manages to take the garbage we're putting on the table and use it for his glory. But you don't gain anything. Without love, your beautiful gift will have the opposite effect. And your amazing gift will make you nothing. And your sacrificial gift will not profit you. You know, that should slow you and I down. And it should sober us, shouldn't it? That we could be so busy in ministry and using our gifts and and investing in other people. And trying to be uh, functioning for the cause. For the mission. And somehow that could amount to nothing. Your spiritual gift is only as good as the love that accompanies it. And so I want to ask you, how are you speaking to others? And how are you serving others? How are you going about the mission, the Great Commission, and everything that relates to it? Are you doing it with love? Have you ever made a dessert that you thought, oh, this is, this is like my favorite. This is going to taste amazing. But when you bit into it, it actually tasted really disgusting. You bit into it and it was a complete and total surprise. Ooh, that wasn't good. And it was at that point that you realized that maybe you did something like add cornstarch instead of uh, powdered sugar. And all it takes is one wrong ingredient and the finished product is disgusting. And that's how it is with the spiritual gifts. When love doesn't make it into the mix, you do whatever. You, you have all the other right ingredients. When love doesn't make it into the mix, whatever it is that you're putting on the table, it's just going to be gross. At least in God's eyes. Love is needed. And your spiritual gift is only as good as the love that accompanies it. So what should happen? Well, you should examine how you're functioning in the body. On Sundays, but not just on Sundays, all throughout the week. And maybe it's time to course correct. Maybe go, oh man, like I'm not functioning with love. And if you identify the, that problem and you realize, wow, I, I've got issues here. I'm functioning, I'm serving, I'm speaking without love. If you identify the problem, just make sure that you choose the right solution to that problem. 
If you lack love, the solution is not to stop or pull away from ministry. That's a complete and total cop-out. The solution is to fix the love problem. Well, how do you know if you're speaking and serving with love? Well, the litmus test comes in the following verses. God's going to say, I'll, I'll tell you what it looks like. I'll describe for you what love looks like. And if you just look at this list and what you're doing, it probably won't be that hard to tell how you're doing. And that leads us to the second fact about love. Love is active. In verses 4 to 7, God describes love in 14 different ways, and every single one of them is active. And that should clue us in that love isn't so much a feeling as it is an activity and a behavior. Love is active. How so? Well, let's just work through some of the things that God says about it. Beginning in verse 4, we read that love is patient. It's patient with people. It's the opposite of being short-tempered. Love has the capacity to be wronged by other people and not retaliate. Uh, Love has an extremely long fuse. When I was in middle school, my friend and I, we'd love to take our money that we made mowing lawns or whatever, and we'd go to the store where we could buy fireworks. We'd love to bring those home. And I don't know, we had all types of little different fireworks, and we would put them in our slingshots. You know, and one one of us would pull it back. Okay, I've got it pulled back. You light it. And as soon as you light it, whoosh. Up on the neighbor's roof. <laughs> um, but those cheap fireworks, I mean, if you've ever played around with those, the fuses aren't all the same length. Some, you're just waiting for the thing, and others, it's like, light it, kaboom! Love's not like that. Love is patient with people, and it has an extremely long fuse. When you minister to or with other people, you know they're, they're going to try your patience. Someone's not going to be organized. And if you're an organized person, that is going to drive you completely and totally mad. Someone's not going to communicate. And if you value that, that's going to drive you crazy. Someone's going to do things wrong or somebody's going to push your buttons. Someone's going to be ungrateful. Someone's going to say something really, really stupid or hurtful. Love is patient. The Bible says that God is long-suffering towards all. His fuse is extremely long. Next on the list, love is kind. It showers other people with kindness and goodness. It, it serves other people with kindness. It speaks to other people with kindness. It reacts with goodness and kindness even when other people mistreat it. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means that you don't speak to your brothers um, or relate to them in mean and hurtful ways. Sometimes I think what happens is the longer that we serve with one another, we become just really comfortable and unkind. And Jesus is not like that. Love's first two activities were stated in positive terms, uh, and the next several items on the list are stated in the negative, describing what love does not do. In verse 4, we read that love does not envy. Envy is a strong passion or, or jealousy towards others. Love doesn't do that. Uh, it's not displeased with the success of other people. Love doesn't allow uh, fellow believers to be in rivalry or competition. We're not competing with each other, and we're not competing with the church down the street, and they're not competing with us. 
Do you want to see your brothers and sisters here at Beaumont Baptist Church and the church down the road succeed in gospel ministry? Or is it really important that you be better or that you do better or that things go better for you than for them? Love recognizes, hey, wait a second, we're all on the same team and we're all on the same mission. And we've all been sent on that mission by God and I, I want to do the best I can and I want to succeed, but I want my brother or sister in Christ to have that same experience. And I want the church down the road to have that same experience. We're not in competition. Next, verse 4, love does not boast. It doesn't brag and boast. Uh, you can't be loving and simultaneously be a windbag. Love doesn't boast in one, one's own accomplishments. It doesn't try to take this, the spotlight and turn it on itself so that others can see. It's not trying to call attention to itself. Do you talk about how great you are or how good of a job you did or do? Along similar lines, maybe you don't verbalize that. But next on the list, love is arrogant. Or No, it's not arrogant. Don't get that wrong. <laughs> love is not arrogant. It's not haughty. It's not full of itself. Do you think you're special or God's special gift to Beaumont Baptist Church or the ministry that you serve in? Next, verse 5, love is not rude. It doesn't do anything that's disgraceful or dishonorable or indecent. It doesn't act with poor manners, nor does it fail to show respect and honor and consideration for others. You know what? It matters how you talk to people and how you respond to people. It matters how you react. Next, love does not insist on its own way. When it doesn't involve compromise, uh, love is willing to take a different route to get there. It's willing to listen to the ideas of other people. It's not demanding. Uh, when those you serve al alongside have a different idea for how to get the job done, are you willing to bend? Next, love is not irritable. I think the idea there is that love is not touchy. It's not easily upset or angered. It doesn't take offense easily. Uh, we say things like this just in our everyday language with one another. We say, ooh, don't look at him the wrong way. <laughs> don't look at her the wrong way. You might not want to go talk to him right now. That's the idea. And so I think the question would be, do people here that you serve alongside or, 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 or minister with or, or do life in the body with, do people find you to be a prickly pear? Next, verse 5, love is not resentful. Or as some translations have put it, love keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't keep accounts. It doesn't take notice of uh, every evil thing that people do and hold it against them. It doesn't harbor a sense of injury. You wronged me and now I'm going to hold on to it. It doesn't keep score or wait to get even or settle the score. Uh, for our budget, my wife and I use an online tool. It's called Every Dollar. And what we try to do every Sunday, typically Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening after the kids go to bed, uh, we sit down with that online tool and we literally track every penny that comes in and every penny that goes out. So that by the end of the month, we know, okay, we saved this much money this month or we spent more money than came, whatever the case may be. And we're tracking everything like an accountant. And some of you actually do that with people. 
And what's great for your money may not be great for your relationships. It's probably not. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. People are going to say and do a lot of sinful things. I am. You are. In fact, the more you serve with me, probably the more and more of that you'll see. And the more I serve with you and the closer that any of us get, the more and more of that that we're probably going to see. We're sinners. But the Bible says that love is not resentful. If someone has sinned against you in a way that that love can't cover, then you have a biblical responsibility to go to them and, and, and talk to them and speak to them and seek and pursue reconciliation. Question for you. Who is in your ledger with a negative balance? Why on earth do you even have a ledger in the first place? And I'm not even talking a physical ledger. I'm talking your internal ledger. Who is in your ledger with a negative balance? Why on earth do you have that? And are you loving that person like Jesus Christ has loved you? It's interesting that the scripture specifically says that your record of debt Christ took that and nailed it to the cross. You shouldn't have a ledger. Next, love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but truth. Love isn't happy when others do wrong. Uh, It doesn't take pleasure in criticizing those who sin, nor does it have a sense of superiority. Oh, look at them, and wow, they're really struggling. But I'm so much better. Love grieves when other people Sin and other when other people sin and uh, people and ministries when there's sin and failure and, and wrongdoing, love grieves. And on the flip side of that, love rejoices in the truth of the gospel. That's what love celebrates and re- rejoices in, and it takes great pleasure when the truth of the gospel advances in the lives of our brothers and sisters. It takes great pleasure when the truth of the gospel advances through other churches and other ministries and makes its way throughout the world. Love rejoices in the truth. Do you want to see other people win or do you want to see them lose spiritually? If you're loving, you're going to want to see your brother and sister win. Do what's right. In other churches and ministries, you're going to want to see the gospel go forward and triumph in people's lives. Next, love bears all things. The idea being that love does not give way easily. And then next, verse 7, love believes all things. Love tends to see the best in other people. In fact, it's eager to believe the best. It, it doesn't sit around and think the worst of people and assume motives, which is really easy to do. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that love is gullible or that it doesn't do its due diligence. It does. However, it's ready to give the benefit of the doubt where possible. In fact, I think that we could go so far as to say that love errs on the side of believing others rather than suspecting them. I think that this can be really hard for people who have been burned. And you've been hurt. And that is some of you. You have been burned and you have been hurt and people have wronged you. And it becomes very difficult to relate to everybody else without putting on the lens of whatever happened in the past by that other person. I also think it can be very hard for people whose occupation more or less exists because of people's fleshliness. I mean, imagine, for example, if you're a police officer, why do you have that job? Because people are so good all the time? 
Like you have an occupation that literally revolves around people's sinfulness. You go to work every day and uh, that, th- those type of jobs are just working in the world, right? You, you've been trained to sniff people out. And it's extremely easy to bring that into the church and just suspect everybody and assume motives. And that's not what love does. It believes all things. And next, love hopes all things. We, we could say that it's, it's forward-looking. It doesn't take failure with people as final. Oh, wow, write them off. Rather, it looks towards the ultimate triumph of the grace of God and in people's lives. Love has a certain degree of optimism about it because it sees God as part of the equation in people's lives. If you see God in the mix, you're able to go, well, that's my brother or sister in Christ. And if that's my brother or sister in Christ, God started a good work in them and he's going to bring it to completion. Love hopes all things because God's in the mix. And finally, love endures all things. It's steadfast. And it remains that way even in the face of unpleasant circumstances. We might say that it has an active, positive fortitude. There's a strength behind it. Uh, When my wife and I were dating and it came to the point where we were about to get engaged and I'd been given a diamond and I'd gone to a jeweler and had him set that in a ring and and, uh, a few other diamonds as well. And I finally got it. The jeweler gave me the ring and I had it in my desk drawer. And it was like I just kind of couldn't help every day or so pulling it out and opening up and just looking at it. I was excited. And, you know, a brand new ring, it's shiny and it's clean. And it, it really didn't matter which way you turned it. It's, it's reflecting light every direction. And love is much like that. It's a precious jewel that whichever way it gets turned, or whatever happens to it, it's always reflecting light. It always sparkles. That's how love is. Whatever way you turn it, it sparkles with radiance. It's active. And it's beautiful. Your spiritual gift is only as good as the love that accompanies it. And third, third fact about love, love is permanent. Verse 8 begins with this simple statement. Love never ends. What does that mean? Well, it means that throughout the endless successive ages of eternity, love will never cease. But, Paul says, do you know what will cease? Do you know what will come to an end? Spiritual gifts. Verses 8 to 10 set up a stark contrast. And the contrast is this. The gifts, they're temporal. But love, it's eternal. The gifts are temporal. That is clearly stated in verses 8 to 10. In contrast to love, the gifts will come to an end. Your gift, or your gifts, plural, they will come to an end. They will cease and they will pass away. God stated that very clearly. Look at that uh, stated in verses 8 to 10. Let's look at these verses. Love never ends. As for prophecies, though, different story. They will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And then he starts to offer this explanation, verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When the perfect comes, spiritual gifts will cease and they will pass away. That which is perfect and full and complete 
will replace the Parsha. And the big question in these verses is, well, what is the perfect? What does that refer to? Has it come? Is that something future? And there are two common views here. Uh, One view is that the perfect refers to the completed canon of Scripture. In other words, uh, after the apostles stepped off the scene and we had all 66 books of the Bible, that was the perfect. And when it came, the gifts ceased, particularly uh, the sign gifts. The canon of Scripture view runs into all kinds of problems, though, in this text. Um, And I would argue that it it represents more of a finding your theology in the text. You you go to the text with a certain set of presuppositions, and you look at the text, and you find your theology there. And you say, see, it's right here. It's, It's the perfect. Rather than deriving your theology from the text, where in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 do you see the canon of Scripture, the completed Bible, Well, I don't think that you do. (laughs) You would have to insert that into the text. But there's another view, and that's the completed perfection of the universe, that that's what the perfect would be. And when I I say that, think, okay, after the second coming of Christ, all these things happen and we enter into the eternal state. Basically, we're talking about the eternal state being what the perfect is in this passage. And that view is certainly to be preferred, not because I think so, but because I I think the text goes there. And I want to show you that. Um, And it becomes apparent by how Paul illustrates what it is that he's just said. Paul's just stated that the gifts are temporal, love's eternal. And he says, I want to illustrate that for you. And he illustrates it in two ways. We're given two illustrations. The first is childhood to manhood. Look at verse 11. Paul writes there, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It's just a a really simple illustration from childhood to manhood. What's the point of the comparison, though? Where does Paul's illustration connect with what he just said? Well, is it this whole childishness idea, negatively speaking? You can't go that route because it's not childishness, negatively speaking, versus maturity. If we took that understanding of the text, it would require taking a negative view of the gifts. The point of comparison, though, it's just a simple comparison of time. It's a then versus now or a present versus the future. By the way, we see words like then and now recurring in this text As one writer states, this illustration from from childhood to manhood illustrates that activity that is appropriate at one stage of life is done away with in another, from childhood to manhood. And that's not because it's bad. It's just no longer appropriate. And the point here is that the use of spiritual gifts is it's appropriate in one period of time. It's very appropriate right now, here, in the life of the church. But it's no longer appropriate in the next. Paul doesn't stop there. He gives us another illustration. And this time it's a mirror versus being face to face. Look at verse 12. He says, For now, currently, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall now know fully, even as I have been fully known. Uh, In Corinth, mirrors were very different than probably the mirror at your house today. 
Mirrors were flat surfaces made out of polished bronze. So you're going to look in, into one of those things and yeah, you're going to get a reflection of yourself, but it's, it's probably not going to be perfect. It's going to have some problems. You would get a reflection, but not a super clear, perfect picture. And the point of comparison here is seeing something fuzzy, maybe a bit blurry, dimly, versus perfect 3D clarity. Face to face. And I would submit to you that the language of verse 12 has to do with seeing Jesus face to face. Not in the pages of his word, the, the, the canon of scripture. Sure, we open up our Bibles and, and we find Jesus there and, and we see Jesus. But not face to face. But this, these verses would talk about seeing him literally face to face. Right now, we could say that God fully knows you. Is there anything that God doesn't know about you? He knows everything about you. He knows you perfectly and wholly and completely. Can you say that you know God that way? Well, I don't think you can. What if you read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible and read your Bible? Would you know Jesus like he knows you? No. You would know him better. But these verses are talking about a time when you will know Jesus like he knows you. Fully. Completely. And you get the idea that there's almost an instantaneousness to it. Face to face. Right now God fully knows you, but you can't say the same thing about him. And no matter how much you read your Bible, you won't fully know him. But one day when the perfect comes, you will fully know These illustrations are being shared in the context of the gifts being temporal. One day, God says, your spiritual gift, it's going to pass away. And everyone else's will either pass away or cease as well. Do you know why that happens? Because they won't be needed. The gifts will cease to exist because the gifts will cease to be needed. The gifts themselves, they don't belong to the future. They don't belong to the eternal state. They're just part of the present. Why has God given us spiritual gifts here and now? Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, he gave those for the, the maturity of the body. He gave them for the benefit and maturity of the body. Every single gift is linked to the church's maturity. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, we read about how the church uh, grows uh, up into manhood, to the, the fullness of the stature of the measure of Christ. And once the gifts have served their purpose, and by the time we get to the eternal state, the gifts become obsolete. Because there we are, beholding Christ face to face. The gifts aren't needed in eternity, but love will never become obsolete. Why is Paul setting up that contrast? Your gift, temporary. Love, eternal. Love is eternal. Verse 8 says it never ends. And then verse 13, after all these illustrations, reiterates that same idea and says that love abides. Forever and ever there will be love. God is love. And do you know what we could say about heaven? Do you know what we could say about the, uh, the eternal state? We could say that heaven is a world of love. That love never ends. And I would say this. Do you know when the church starts to feel like just a little bit of a slice of heaven? 
It doesn't feel that way when people are using their spiritual gifts. Just ask Corinth. They've got all the gifts. They lack nothing. They're enriched. Does Corinth feel like a slice of heaven? Sure doesn't seem to be. It's not when people are using their gifts, but when people are using their gifts with love. And when people serve in love, and when they speak in love, and when they mentor other people in love, and when they have their relationships in the body in love, the church starts to feel just a little bit like heaven and what's to come. Love is permanent. God's just driving home the same point again and again. Your spiritual gift is only as good as the love that accompanies it. Don't get all hung up on the gifts and think that you're special or this or that or whatever. It's love that matters. And finally, a fourth fact about love. Love is supreme. Look at verse 13. It says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. For all of eternity, we will have faith. We will have complete absolute trust in God and we will have hope we'll have complete confidence and expectation in the Lord and we will have love and which one of those is the greatest verse 13 says it's love love is supreme your spiritual gift is only as good as the love that accompanies it as we wrap up here this afternoon I just want to say this what this text is describing what it's talking about you realize that You can do this. You can function lovingly in the body. That's something that you personally can do. You can. Do you know why? Because there's someone there to help you. Each time we see the word love in verses 4 to 7, we could replace it with Jesus. And why don't we just do that? Starting in verse 4. We we might read it this way. It's not what the text says, but, but... what we're about to do would be true. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. What's amazing is that before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told his followers that he was going to send them a gift. That he was going to send them his spirit. And before those people were ever given gifts, they were given the spirit of God. And sometimes in Scripture, do you know how the Holy Spirit is referred to? He's referred to as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, then the Spirit of Jesus Christ is in you personally. To help you be like Jesus. To help you have the love that he commends to us here in this passage. The help is there. And I think the question for all of us, okay, like there's, there's no excuse. The help is there. If I'm a believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within me. 
The spirit of the risen Christ, the God of love, dwells within me. There's, there's no excuse for this, for me to be unloving. And by God's grace, if I will turn to the Lord and seek his help, I can be exactly what this text describes. And I'm going to need his help, and I'm going to fail, but it is possible for me to love as God commands me to do. Love is the most excellent way for you to use your spiritual gift, and it's only as good as the love that accompanies it. Would you bow your heads with me at this time?